Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Ross Kemp, and this is The Kemp Cast. In this podcast, I'm joined by guests from all walks of life who all have engaging stories to tell, whether it's about their life, their career or their expertise. I hope that if you listen to this series, not only will you learn something about the guests, but also about the world we live in. Joining me today is Dr. Daisy Fancourt. She's an Associate Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology at University College London and is currently running the UK's largest study into the psychological and social impact of COVID-19. Daisy, thank you so much for joining me. Um, first question I have to ask you, what is a psychobiologist? I'm aware it does sound a little bit like a nutty scientist, but actually what it is, is it's a field that looks at the relationship between what happens to us psychologically and how our bodies respond. So very much on the connection between mind and body, and particularly how things like mental health can affect our immune function, our physiology, and these other physical parameters of our health. So our mental health can affect our, our, well, our being, not just in terms of what goes on in our heads, but also what goes on in terms of our immune system. Absolutely. I mean, everything that happens in our brain is fundamentally linked with what happens in the rest of our bodies and our behaviours. And also, conversely, the way that we behave and the way that we feel physically has an effect on how we psychologically feel day to day. So it's studying the connection. Yeah. Is that right? That's right. And it's, it's basically saying that mental health isn't just about what we feel in our minds, but it has a profound effect on our overall physical health as well. Um, I mean, I, I was always this figure's banded about and maybe you can correct me is it sort of like through our lifetimes one in four of us will have some kind of mental health issue that's a figure that gets quoted a lot and yes that seems to be what we're finding at the moment so mental health is very much something that affects the, you know, a large proportion of people and even if you're not affected by mental health I'm sure everyone has days when they feel anxious or low and they get a little bit of a taster of what mental health can be like that perhaps opens their eyes onto how bad it can be for some people and would you expect that that figure is going to rise as a result of the lockdowns and of the, the pandemic? Unfortunately, I think it's very likely and we've already started to see evidence of that. And I think it's something that might well not just unfold across the pandemic, but over the years that follow this pandemic as the fallout continues. And also in terms of mental health, like many illnesses, it's not just the person who's directly affected. It's the people around them, isn't it? It is. I mean, mental health is something that's very much 
affects whole families, it can affect whole communities, and it also affects healthcare professionals as well. This is something that touches everybody. So can you just tell me about the study you're conducting presently? I think there's 70,000 people in, involved in it. How do they report to you and how frequently do they report to you? So over the last year, we've collected data from these people every single week. So we're now up to around a million surveys from them in total. It's an online study, but we supplement it with telephone interviews as well for more information from people. And it's giving us a real-time insight into how people are being affected psychologically and socially. So when the pandemic started, we saw initially that tracking of cases and mortality rates, but we felt it was equally important that we were looking and tracking in real time the wider effects this pandemic was going to have, because only some people will catch COVID, but everybody is being affected in their lives day to day. What has been the most startling thing that you, you found? Well, coming into this pandemic, we had some theories about how epidemics generally and things like quarantines or isolation affect people. So I think heading in as a scientist, we had uh, certain thoughts about the way this was likely to play out in terms of mental health. And I think what's been surprising is it's been pretty much the opposite of what we expected in terms of how people have been affected. So it's shown that when you have an epidemic at a global scale and something that's as serious as COVID, actually the, the effects are way more profound and, and very different to what we initially hypothesized. So tell me what's turned your world upside down. Well, when we've looked at previous epidemics, so things like the H1N1 swine flu, SARS, MERS, Ebola, what we've found consistently is that if people have to quarantine because they're suspected for having symptoms, for example, their mental health tends to get worse across the quarantine period. And actually what we found with COVID was it was the opposite. People's mental health started getting worse before lockdowns came in, in lots of different countries. It seems that the uncertainty about what was happening actually fueled anxiety and depression. Actually, once lockdowns came in, for many people that stabilized their mental health because at least they felt an action was being taken. They felt like there was a little bit more security. They felt a bit safer at home. Um, so it was a slightly different pattern to those previous epidemics. But then, of course, as we've now had lockdowns going in and out, we've started to learn that lockdowns don't always have the same effect. So the context in which the lockdown is introduced and also the kinds of adversities people are facing, like job losses, bereavements, these kinds of things all interact together meaning that there's not one response psychologically to COVID, but there's actually a really heterogeneous range of possibilities for people's mental health that we're only really starting to properly understand now. Just can, I mean, for me, uh, having obviously like everyone else in this country going through the first and then the second lockdown, for me, obviously there was a difference because of the time of year it took place. And we know in winter, generally we're more likely to be depressed. We, we get less sunlight, less vitamin D. But also, I think my mental outlook was different during the first lockdown. Um, when the first, we thought that would be it. We thought we'd done our job. We were, were through. We're into the summer. That's it. It's over. We've, we've, we've conquered this. And, and, and that couldn't have been further from the truth. Was that kind of expectation... And then the reality, because I was in the hospitals and I was being told by the experts there and then that we were going to face something far worse in the winter, even though I was being told that in my head, my survival instinct, whatever it is, was I've, I've got through this and I'm going to be all right. Little did I know that I was actually going to get COVID. Is, did that play something into the fact that I thought the first lockdown brought out sort of the best in most of us and the worst in a few of us and the second lockdown 
as far as I've I, I've seen and I and the way I've behaved has brought out the worst in the most of us, including myself, and the best in the few of us. I think that's probably fairly accurate. Yes, in that first lockdown, as soon as the lockdown came in, there was a suddenly a huge. Um, almost excitement about the fact you got a break from your normal life for many people. People were taking up hobbies, languages. There were all of these arts and cultural things you could stream online. People were doing Zoom games all the time. So whilst there were obviously a huge amount of adversities going on underneath that for people catching COVID, people who are being bereaved, losing their jobs, facing financial issues, for a lot of people, it felt like a hiatus from normal life that wasn't wholly unwelcome. Plus, we were told it would be 12 weeks and we'd be back to normal. So it didn't feel too bad. I think you're right that what's happened this autumn is the realisation that actually it's not as simple as that. And there's the potential we could cycle in and out of lockdowns for a while longer that's actually started to scare people. But also, I think some of the toll that people faced across the pandemic so far, like those job losses, like those financial concerns, those have started to build up more and more. So I think that started to have another effect on people plus any kind of resilience that we had initially has started to be tested by the circumstances. And I think for some people, they've reached the end of their tether in terms of what they can cope with. And they're now feeling that they don't have those psychological resources to be able to carry on making the best of things. I, I honestly totally agree with that. I, I, and, I, and I've seen it, you know, I live in a particularly, probably quite a nice part of the world. Um, have, you, have, you, have you seen, um, for your study, have you seen how, who's been worst affected by this um, in terms of the mental health? Is there a particular group or a, a particular area where people have, have, have suffered more than others? Definitely. There was this phrase initially about we're all in this together, which I really hated as a phrase because we weren't all in it together. People's circumstances and people's individual characteristics meant that some people were at much greater risk of poorer mental health and the groups that we saw being worst affected included younger adults who've had poorer mental health across every single measure that we've looked at across mental health and well-being. It also included people from ethnic minority groups. Around half of people from ethnic minority groups have had worse mental health in the pandemic compared to just one in three people from white ethnic backgrounds. And we've also seen that people from lower socioeconomic positions, so people with fewer financial resources, they've been particularly badly hit. Um, in terms of mental health across the pandemic. So it's not fair to say we're all in it together. We've seen these groups. And unfortunately, these are groups who typically have worse mental health anyway, even outside of pandemic situations. But the gap between the groups has widened during COVID. So we've seen this exacerbation of these usual inequalities in mental health. So it is, is, it, is it a class pandemic? Is COVID a class issue? It's been referred to as a pandemic of inequality, and I think that's a very fair way of thinking about it. And I think it's something that should be shocking us that we already have those types of inequality in society. But the fact that they're being made even worse at times of strain doesn't really say much for how we've responded, because it suggests that our response at a policy level, at a community level, has not been enough to help those most in need. In terms of a response, in terms of mental health right now, while we're still in lockdown, is anything being done now? There's a lot being done. I mean, the NHS in particular is working incredibly hard to try and support everyone that they can. And the message is still, if you've got uh, poor mental health at the moment, you should be reaching out to healthcare professionals. But we know that many people haven't been doing that. Sometimes they've been worried about adding strain to the NHS. They've been scared that they're going to use up resources that mean that other people aren't getting urgent care. 
Um, they've also, uh, some people have been concerned um, about how to access that care because some of the usual ways that you'd interact with healthcare have been disrupted. And then there are also others where they've just faced the kinds of barriers that we see outside of the pandemic to accessing healthcare. Like we know that some of these groups I've mentioned are less likely to enter, uh, access mental health services anyway, but that's obviously started to have more of an impact on them day to day. You talked about those those groups. Can you be, be any more specific? So let's talk about young people in general. You know, obviously, particularly people going through puberty, it's a hard enough time anyway. I think probably I remember it being the hardest time in all in all the years that I've been on this planet, really. Uh, it's hard enough going through it when you're interacting at school, socialising, but to be put into lockdown, that must be so hard. And also the kind of like the online bullying aspect of that, the kind of social media aspect of that, all of that must have not helped people's mental health, young people's mental health. Well, it's interesting. In the first lockdown, we found that many young people, teenagers, for example, actually had reductions in social anxiety. There was a break from the kinds of social pressures that they sometimes were facing at school. But actually, as the pandemic's gone on and things have been disrupted for longer periods of time, particularly those kinds of day-to-day -day social interactions, we've started to see the toll on mental health adding up. But I think another group that's particularly concerned me is the 18 to 25-year-olds. So that transition group where you're leaving school, you're normally off to university or you're trying to get a job, you're into another stage in your life. And that's been fundamentally disrupted. And for many young people, they won't get those opportunities again. But also often these young people are living away from home. They're more likely to be living on their own or with people they don't know so well, uh, facing things like more temporary student accommodation, for example. And that really seems to have affected people in terms of increases in loneliness. And at the same time, you know, these are young people who are most likely to have been affected by the job cuts and the inability to get jobs at the moment. So we're seeing that that age group is having huge disruption. And if we compare them, for example, to a 60 year old who might be retired, living in their own home without any of those same types of worries, we can see it's been a completely different psychological experience. So, so would you say that what loneliness um, and people being on their own, would those people have suffered the most, particularly in that age group? Loneliness has definitely been a contributing factor to poorer mental health across the pandemic. And we know that, that loneliness has been much more common amongst younger adults. And particularly students have stood out as a group who've been very badly affected by loneliness during this pandemic. Um, but I, I don't think it's just loneliness. I think it's also those other kinds of disruptions that are being faced. And I think the concern that these are transitional periods in young people's lives that they don't know necessarily how to get back on the path they've been hoping to be on at this point. Uh, in terms of ethnicity, is there any particular group that has, has suffered more in terms of their mental health? In our research, we've looked um, more broadly at, at different sort of broad categories as opposed to specific experiences, but we have particularly tried to identify why people are facing uh, poorer mental health. And it seems there are two factors. One of them is a kind of structural problem in our society and that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are more likely to be of lower socioeconomic position. They're more likely to live in deprived areas. They're more likely to have been affected by things like job losses. So we're seeing here these kinds of socioeconomic factors explaining some of the differences. But we've also looked at things like discrimination and we found that uh, people from ethnic minority groups be much more likely to experience discrimination, not just in terms of race, but also in terms of other things like age and gender, they're more likely to experience those than white uh, individuals are. 
So, and I think we've particularly heard stories of that people, for example, from Asian backgrounds facing um, discrimination early on in the pandemic, especially that the, pa the pandemic was somehow their fault. They were more likely to be carrying the virus. Really? Yes, we had uh, participants um, who are originally from China, um, uh, who were saying that they were being specifically blamed for it as it was considered a Chinese virus amongst some individuals. And then because we've seen other ethnic groups be more likely to catch the virus, some people have been more cautious about getting close to them or they've somehow felt that they're more likely to catch it from someone who's from an ethnic minority background. So we've seen a range of responses that have been quite shocking, but of course have had a, a psychological effect on those individuals experiencing that kind of discrimination. Shocking. Uh, but somehow not that surprising, sadly. Um, what are the biggest differences between the first and the second lockdown in terms of your study? Interestingly, the second lockdown has actually been worse for some people in terms of mental health. We've actually found things like well-being hitting the greatest low across this pandemic in, in this latest uh, lockdown in 2021 compared to in 2020. And I think that this really highlights the, the fact that we don't just get used to the concept of lockdowns, but they continue to have a toll and that toll can build up and get worse over time. I guess this second lockdown has been very different behaviorally. Uh, the weather has been much worse. It's also been much shorter days. Um, so I think that's affected people's um, health behaviors like their physical activity, for example. So we've seen lower levels of physical activity now. And of course, physical activity is very much linked in with our mental health. So people who've been much more confined to their homes, I think have been experiencing stronger effects on anxiety and depression as a result. So I think we're hoping that as we head into the spring and summer more, that there'll be better conditions in terms of things very basic like the weather that mean that people can get out and about a bit more. And I guess that as the restrictions ease as well, we'll start to see the greater freedom starting to have beneficial effects, which we saw in 2020 when the first lockdown was eased. People's mental health got a lot better as restrictions eased. I've looked at some of the findings in your study and there's like this kind of jump between, you know, in the first lockdown, people did more exercise, people had more hobbies. I know the weather played a part of that, but people were getting out um, in the garden or going for a run or doing some form of exercise this 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 lockdown more people are watching television more people are gaming they're eating not what they should be eating in terms of healthy foods so it seems that we've, we've kind of flipped is there any reason for that is it just because it's the second one is it just because the winter is what are the factors that have, have, have changed people's behavior both of those are factors, but another key thing has been around work patterns. In, in the first lockdown, a very high percentage of people were furloughed. So in fact, they weren't having to juggle as much. Many people were just having to live a different type of life. Whereas now we've actually found that many fewer people have been furloughed. And we've seen many more people who are trying to juggle work with family responsibilities, with homeschooling, with all the other aspects of their lives. And this has placed a huge amount of pressure on people, reducing any free time they might have had for exercise or for other self-care activities and hobbies and things that would help them. Also, we haven't had the same promise about when this lockdown would end. We had quite a clear roadmap in the first lockdown of 2020, whereas now it's sort of gone on and on and no one's been quite sure when the end's going to be. And I think that has a, a, a psychological toll as well, because it's not like you're heading towards a finish line. You're just constantly waiting and hoping. Um can I talk to you about drink and drugs? Has there been an increase of difference between the first lockdown and the second lockdown? 
It's been a really interesting thing to look at how people's health behaviours have changed um, across these lockdowns. And in the first lockdown, we found that about half of people didn't change, for example, their drinking habits. And in fact, about one in three people actually drunk less. I think many people were thinking it was a chance for a health kick. But there are about one in six who were drinking more. And when, when we actually look at what's happened since then, we're finding that a substantial number of these have actually carried on drinking more and more cumulatively ever since. So it suggests that for some, the pandemic has actually knocked their usual health behaviours and actually led to a, a, worsening, uh, a, a worsening drinking pattern that perhaps might need more support as we transition out of this pandemic. What about self-harm? Have you seen an increase in self-harm? At the moment, the data from around the world is suggesting there has been an increase in self-harm as a result of the pandemic. Um, and I think this is concerning both for the self-harm itself, but also because self-harm can be a precursor to suicidal behaviours. And in fact, some of the data we've got coming out from the UK has suggested that suicide levels haven't actually increased so far. Um, but what we have seen um, from other countries like Japan is that actually there's a bit of a delayed response in terms of the very severe uh, psychological responses to the pandemic. And I think this is a reason why we might be relieved that so far things have seemed stable on that front, but we probably shouldn't be fully reassured because as job losses increase and as the consequences of that on people's lives, like inability to pay bills, start to come through, that's the point when we probably need to be especially cautious and trying to make sure we've really got the support that we need in place. And in other countries, we're finding that there's a direct link between the economic hardships people are facing and suicide levels. So I think we have to be very careful in the UK that given we know we've got increasing economic hardship, you know, 70% of people who were hard up before the pandemic are in a worse financial position now. We need to make sure that we're thinking what the consequences of this are going to be psychologically and in terms of self-harm and suicide. So your socioeconomic situation has a direct effect on your mental health? Absolutely. Again, in terms of self-harming and, and, and sadly the prospect of there being suicides because of, of people's misfortune economically, does furloughing and carrying on furloughing people help people's mental health? Well, I think anything that will stave off the sudden complete loss of income or forcing people into really difficult situations is beneficial. But I think a challenge that we've faced so far is that often the decisions on the extensions of fellow schemes have come incredibly late. And whilst that might technically have saved a job last minute for someone, people might have faced weeks of worry up to that point about what's going to happen to them financially. And we've actually found that worrying about hardships in the pandemic has been just as bad or even worse for mental health than actually experiencing things. Because when you're worrying about them, you're out of control. You can't do anything practical, but you just have that constant threat over you all the time. And we, we flagged this a lot through our studies because it has, of course, huge policy implications because it suggests that it's not enough just to bring in the measures last minute. We really need to be, again, thinking ahead about what things are on the horizon for people and therefore what we can do to try and reduce that psychological toll. The light at the end of the tunnels, you know, that kind of light gets moved and moved and moved. And, and that brings me on to kind of the, the questions about trust. I mean, where do we sit on that? I mean, that, that's, that's intrinsic to a human being, isn't it? To be able to trust those in authority. Has that trust changed during the two, the two different lockdowns? It has very fundamentally, actually. We, we've been tracking people's trust in the government to handle the pandemic effectively uh, ever since we started the study. And we found that actually trust went up when the first lockdown came in last year. 
because people like a decisive action. They want to feel that someone's in control and is guiding them through it. Um, and it stayed relatively constant across the first few weeks of that first lockdown. But there were two things that really seemed to wobble people. The first of them was the announcement in England that we were going to ease lockdown early, which we didn't have from Scotland and Wales in early May of last year. And I think people got concerned that it was too early, particularly as they weren't seeing the same response from other countries at the time. Um, so there was quite a big drop in confidence after that. And then the second thing was the story breaking about Dominic Cummings going up to Durham. And this really shook people's confidence in the government because for many people, or for the vast majority, they'd been following the rules to a T. So to find out that actually someone had broken them and then it was being defended that you didn't actually have to have followed them fully. People were sort of feeling, well, why have I made all these sacrifices when I didn't have to? And we found that there was a 30% increase in the number of people saying they didn't trust the government to handle the pandemic uh, in the days following that news story breaking. And that trust did not recover across the whole of the rest of last year. It started picking up as the vaccine rollout has been a success, but it was a major knock to people's trust. And the problem with this is that trust is one of the biggest factors that's been affecting compliance across this pandemic in the UK and internationally. So the more people trust their government, the more they follow the behaviours and also the better the effect on their mental health. So it's actually it's not just about our political views. It's very much about the whole underpinning of this pandemic. Do we trust that the people guiding us through this are doing a good job and therefore should we be doing what they tell us? Isn't it interesting? I know it wasn't just Dominic Cummings. There are other people that that didn't who were high up in the government that didn't follow the guidelines as, as well. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, how much trust has an effect on entire countries' mental health? It is. And I think, of course, he wasn't the first person or the only person to break the rules, but it was the first one where it wasn't followed by an apology and a resignation. And I think, you know, we know as humans that we can mess up, but we usually expect that if you mess up, you face a consequence for it. So the fact it was defended, I think, was what was the problem. That was what sparked the anger, the fact that it was somehow it was okay for him suggesting that it was one rule for some and another rule for others. And that really undermined the concept of all in it together because that the same cohesion that we'd built up in that first lockdown, and it was remarkable that first lockdown, the mutual aid groups that emerged, the, the clapping on Thursday nights, the fact that there was this real feeling that we were bonding together as a nation, that was really badly affected um, by the news story breaking about Cummings. And we've not really had that cohesion back properly since. And that still lasted. So that, that's still echoing down the chambers of, of lockdown. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the spring, 95% of the people said they understood the rules, but by August, only 45% of the people said they understood the rules. Yes, this was a huge problem. Uh, I think the rules were very clear initially because we only had a few to follow in first lockdown. The thing that got very confusing across the summer is was not only the, the volume of rules, um, there were lots of nuances and caveats and reasons why you didn't necessarily have to always follow all of them. But then we started having these differences by region. And that really seemed to wobble people because it felt to many people that it was arbitrary. One street in one area could be in a higher tier than the next street. And people didn't understand why. They weren't being given clear rationale. It wasn't always seeming to tie in with virus levels. So I think people have consistently said in our study that they want to understand why they're being asked to do something. They want there to be a logic behind it. And this logic went. And at the same time, there was also a change in communication strategy where rules would come in very, very last minute. There was one example in August where something came in late at night as a rule change for first thing the next morning. And many people have slept through the whole thing and didn't even know there'd been a rule change. So things like that also meant people didn't know where they were supposed to get their, their information from. And I think there's also been a bit of fatigue around watching briefings and the briefings weren't always continuing consistently. So we started getting people where it was so complicated to keep up to date with the rules that they just weren't really bothering. Behavioral fatigue is, what is behavioral fatigue? If I'm honest, I think a lot of scientists were asking the same question a year ago. This wasn't a concept that arose from science. This was a concern that if you locked down too early, people would stop following the rules and uh, they, they'd become tired about having to follow the rules. But actually it's the opposite. What's actually been shown consistently is that in times of emergency, humans are very, very good at banding together and doing what's necessary for the greater good. And if we look at things like compliance, there was basically no drop off in compliance at all across the first lockdown last year. People had remarkably high levels of compliance. The only point compliance started to go down was when lockdown started to be eased. And there were several reasons for this. Partly it was confusion around rules. So people are just not really sure what they're supposed to do. And therefore they start to apply their own logic. They think, well, this sounds safe and therefore I'll do this. But also the message as soon as lockdown starts to ease is that things are less dangerous than before. Therefore we don't have to be as careful. And that's a, a difficult message because often we've eased lockdowns at the point when virus levels have still been quite high. And now as a good example, we've still got quite high virus levels, even though we're starting to reopen parts of society. But the subliminal message can be that actually it's, uh, it's not as bad as it was. It's no longer as much of an emergency and therefore you can relax a bit. Yeah, I, I mean, the message we've just gotten, I was one of those uh, parents going, yes, um, even though I love my, my five-year-old and my 10-year-old very much, to see them go back to school was a great <laughs> relief in many ways, dare I say it. Um, he, the Prime Minister has said that we, that will be, that's it. There will be no more uh, children not, not going back to school. Do you think that's true? To be honest, I think it's, it's impossible to say at the moment. If things continue well with vaccine rollouts um, and we don't start to have rises in cases again, then it's very likely we can keep schools open. 
but all it takes is for a new variant on the virus that means that it's no longer as effective with the vaccination program and it could be that in the autumn we'd be having to look at new restrictions again because our vaccinations might not be keeping cases at bay so I think at the moment it's it's far too difficult to be able to make the definitive statements like that even though it's of course the kind of reassurance that many people want to hear. Yeah so in terms of going back to compliance um you know does your socio-economic position have anything to do with how well you comply? This has been a bit of a myth, to be honest. I think there was initial, well, I say initial, over the summer, we started to get more and more blaming of different groups. Blaming rarely has any benefits from a behavioural perspective. It doesn't tend to increase people's compliance. And actually, I think particularly amongst young people, we, we had a lot of young people in our study being particularly upset because they were saying, we have been complying. We've actually just been doing what we've been told to do, like eating out to help out. And that was one of the things that were very much was behind an increase in cases. But that was something that they were told to do. So the fact that young people were then picking up cases uh, more frequently was somehow uh, suggested that they were just being more deviant in their behaviours. But I think in terms of any of these groups, if we're looking to see who's to blame for things, the problem is that it's much more complex than that. You know, if we look at young people, um, they are more likely to have met up with more people than they're supposed to from other households, but they're much more likely to have actually adhered to the testing regimes and to have isolated when they've been told to. And actually older adults have been much worse about going for tests and following the mandatory isolation. So it's very much swings and roundabouts, which we have to be very, very careful, I think, if we're trying to apportion blame to any one group over the others. But was there a, I mean, I've got to be careful what I say, but there are people that I know who relatively privileged individuals that seem to think they know more than the scientists. And, and then also, you know, as we gradually come out of lockdown, so you can meet in groups of four, well, what's the problem there being six then, so long as we kind of socially distance? That, that there is a reason, isn't there? But all of these parameters that have been set are there for a reason, is to keep the rate as low as possible. Can you can you explain to me kind of like the reason why four is okay and six isn't, and why people think in their heads, well, if four's okay, then why not have six? Why not have eight? In general, the fewer people that you have together, the lower the risk of things spreading. And particularly that's the case indoors. We know that the risk of things spreading outdoors is lower. So that's why we've had to be particularly cautious across the winter when it's been more indoor gatherings. Sometimes it's probably true that six wouldn't be any different from four in terms of a risk in a particular situation. But the point is, is that we have to set, we have to set rules and limits. So things get set. Um, and the reason it's particularly important to follow these is because uh, not only are they about limiting the virus, but it's also about the impact your behavior has on others. If we're consistently seeing people in groups of six when it's supposed to be fewer, then all that does is make people think, oh, well, I could meet up with more people as well. So it's, it's about the behavioral effect that we have on others too. And what's been interesting, and I wrote about this in The Guardian a, a while ago, was that people of privilege have been more likely to break the rules overall. Again, keep keeping some of that nuance that I mentioned before, but they've also been more likely to think that they can bend the rules. So we've heard stories of people where they've been told to quarantine when they've gone abroad and instead they've just paid for taxis at midnight to get away. And it's felt like if they can buy their way out of a problem, then that's somehow a success. And it's turned it around so that a success is getting around the rules rather than following the rules. And I, I think what's, what's sort of particularly concerning here is the message that then sends to everybody else. It suggests that if you can afford to make get, get around the rules, then that's fine. 
you can buy your way out of the virus, basically. Exactly, but it demonizes the rules. The rules aren't the enemy, the viruses. Uh, uh, well, there you go. There's a question I was going to ask you. Do you, do you think that the, the outlook of a lot of people changed from the enemy was the virus and then the enemy all of a sudden became the measures that were enforced to beat it? But there was a reason this happened. And the reason it happened, which we've seen from our study, was that people no longer understood why the measures were being brought in, what the logic behind them was and why they were necessary. Or you could also say, I don't understand these on purpose because it doesn't suit me. You're right. There could be a kind of willful non-compliance. But actually, when, when we look at it, what we found consistently is that the, the proper willful non-compliance, so that massive house parties, the raves, that's been a tiny, tiny proportion of people. But that's the, the thing the media loves. But, but do, do, do carry on, because I like to, because I reckon the people that haven't complied the most will be individuals of a certain age, of a certain privilege, who basically see themselves above the government or, or, or the advice of scientists. But this is the difference between the breaking of the rules and the bending of the rules. The breaking of the rules are those big front page stories you get about raves and house parties. And if, I kind of understand why newspapers do it, because it's a great story. Everyone loves hearing about something dramatic and bad that's happened. But it's not really fair because it's such a tiny proportion of people, but it makes it look like it's a lot of people. In, in my eyes, the slightly more problematic thing has been the bending of the rules. That's where you you justify going to a second home because actually you're now thinking of it as your primary residence for the next three months. And it's it's just, it's interpreting the rules to suit yourself, but at the same time, it's no longer upholding the spirit of them. And given that this whole pandemic is about the spirit, about really doing everything you can to try and stop the spread, uh, that, that gets ruined by bending of the rules because it starts being about everyone in it for themselves. You know, what can you get out of this? Because, because human beings, I believe, are actually kind of programmed to, to work for the collective interest in, in, in times of extremism. You know, when extreme events happen, we're actually we're sort of programmed to kind of pull together. We are, and that's what we saw in the first lockdown. But we've seen that being fragmented since by various events, by seeing people breaking the rules and getting away with it, by seeing blaming of different groups, but also by not understanding anymore why the rules are necessary, what they're being brought in for, not understanding the, the, the logic behind things. And that's undermined that social cohesion and that spirit that initially led us to have such phenomenally high response. But what's particularly interesting is when we look at each of the lockdowns, the stricter the measures get, the better compliance gets. When we think it's serious, we step up our behaviors. Our behaviours get worse at the point we think they're no longer as important. Interesting. And, and do, do punitive measures work? Do, do the fact that there are fines out there, do they actually dissuade people from, from breaking the rules? In some situations they can, but I think that punitive measures are not as helpful as people want them to be because they assume that everyone is doing a willful non-compliance. But like I said, that, that proper breaking of the rules is such a tiny proportion of people. The bending of the rules is much more common. And like we've discussed, often that is people being selfish or people thinking that it doesn't matter. But other reasons for bending the rules is that people can't afford to follow them. We've seen people who are scared about going to get tested because if they have COVID, they know that they can't go to work and they then can't afford to feed their families. We know people where they've got caring responsibilities, where if they're forced to isolate, no one will be able to look after the person that they're caring for. So these are then actual real life problems that need solutions rather than punishments. Agreed, 100%. Uh, do you think the government truly understands what 
certain elements of society are going through right now in terms of what you've just you've just outlined those people who are at the very bottom it would seem would be the ones funnily enough that that are effect, affected the most you know in terms of economics and, and 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 their well-being in terms of their mental health and and their actual overall health do you think they understand it do you think they've got, when they're, when, they're, when they're making the policies, producing the policies, advised by scientists, of course, um, do, they think, do you think they've really understood what's going on? There's no doubt that they know what is going on because data from my study and many other studies are going in giving results to government on a weekly basis. So we've got these lines of communication showing what the problems are, showing the groups most in need, and even suggesting things that could help to support those groups. But I think this often comes down, as always, to political decisions. So there is obviously money, 37 billion has gone on to test and trace now, which has been linked with hardly any change in virus, uh, in reductions in virus cases. Uh, but at the same time, we've got support schemes for individuals that are simply not covering basic needs like food week on week, which have been flagged consistently, but haven't been given the financial injection that they need to provide that necessary support to people. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that shocked me most, and this was during the first lockdown, I went to a food bank in, in Beaconsfield, which is, you know, an affluent area, I guess. And, and there was somebody that turned up, you know, in a virtually brand new Mercedes to get food. Um, they didn't want to go on camera, understandably, but, you know, that person explained to me that the house was mortgaged, the cars, you know, on credit, uh, I live up to the end of the month and when the month ended and I didn't get paid there was no food literally you know in, in the cupboards and, and I think there are a lot of people that are faced with that and I think that I don't I don't think we've begun to understand just how many people are suffering not only kind of like financially but 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 really, really uh, having uh, real mental health problems that are not going to go away and that big question for me is is anything being done now to to look after the people that are going to suffer for years after this, let's hope this pandemic is over. Once this is over, is anything being done now to help people's mental health long term? We're seeing a phenomenal effort from charities and local community groups who are doing amazing work on the ground to support, but we're not really seeing the coordinated response at national level that's needed to tackle what we're going to be facing, as you've rightly pointed out, for years to come. And I think lots of people think that once the pandemic's under control, the mental health side will be sorted. But it's the opposite of that. We've seen such a widening in inequality. We've seen so many individuals forced into conditions of poverty. We're about to see rises in unemployment when furlough comes to an end and consequent hardship. Uh, not to mention the kinds of psychological experiences people have faced like bereavements in this time. These are going to have a, a profound effect on people's mental health. It's going to echo for years to come. So we really need to be seeing resource going in now to help prevent or mitigate that and also to provide that ongoing necessary um, support in the in the time to follow but we haven't really seen those promises yet so nothing really effectively is being done right now and then that's has always been the case with mental health because for often it doesn't show up you know particularly in terms of ptsd you know from people coming back from, from afghanistan for instance you know it's very easy for a politician to hold up a prosthetic leg and say look we're helping this chap or this lady walk again. But if you spend lots of money on someone's mental health, which prevents them from being abusive, for instance, or becoming an alcoholic or an addict of some kind, you never can't, you can't hold that up and present that to someone. That's not something visceral. 
so often mental health in terms of funding suffers because of that. Is that right? That is right. And I think that we've made a lot of progress in terms of people now starting to realise that mental health isn't just all in your head, that it is a real thing that has to be taken very seriously. And that's been the remarkable work of organisations over the last decade or so. But I still agree with you that we don't have a proper parity between mental and physical health. And given this is a pandemic that physically has only affected a proportion of the population, but mentally has affected everybody, we should be seeing a proper injection of funding and resources into mental health. And that's not coming at the moment. Do you think there will be phased with more, more lockdowns? To be honest, I don't know. And I think it's a difficult thing to speculate on at the moment, given how much the situation is constantly changing. But I feel like we've been on the back foot psychologically each time a lockdown has come in. We've not had enough preparation and not enough resource for organizations to prepare to provide psychological support. And even if we're not going to face another lockdown, I feel we should still be preparing now so that if it happens, we're in a better position to support people. That preventative measure is surely one of the biggest lessons we should have taken from this pandemic. We have to be ready in case things happen because by the time they happen, it's too late. Agreed. What about the rollout? Is that having a positive effect on people's mental health? The vaccine rollout? Yeah. Uh, we've certainly seen that mental health has started to improve a little bit in the last few weeks. At the moment, it's hard to attribute that to whether it's the vaccine rollout or whether it's the news that um, lockdown is going to be easing again or whether it's even things like weather improving, meaning people are getting out and about a bit more. Um, but they'll start to emerge in time how much that is specifically due to the vaccine itself. But I think we can definitely say that the promise of the vaccine and the, the beneficial results that are already coming through, they are definitely starting to affect many of the measures that we've been looking at, including confidence in government that we've spoken about as one of the factors that affects mental health. That thing about telling the truth. And, and, and I think, you know, I have to say, it's very difficult to second guess the, a pandemic and it's very easy to blame government. But I think one thing that has, I mean, I've seen personally, I went out to a, a vaccination centre in Slough and, it was very interesting, quite emotional to see a lot of people being vaccinated and their reaction afterwards is kind of quite kind of many people very hesitant beforehand. And then and then this uh, this kind of sense of, of kind of release once they had been vaccinated and a lot of people were in tears. It was quite an emotional kind of um, experience um, to witness through your study, Daisy, have you you know identified any particular group that are unwilling to want to have the vaccine? We have identified certain groups who've been more cautious about it, more hesitant. I, I'm always very keen to differentiate between people who are actively unwilling, which are typically the group that get called anti-vaxxers, versus people who've got concerns and haven't yet made up their minds. Because actually, sometimes people use the label anti-vaxxer and it can sort of imply that it's this binary thing. But actually, what we know is that the reasons that people don't want to have vaccines are normally very legitimate. They're worried about side effects or they're worried about the, the long-term potential effects on their health, that they, they perhaps have beliefs that natural immunity might be better. Now with the COVID vaccine, none of these things are actually true as it happens, but uh, the, the important way to deal with that is to be able to get clearer communication messages out there, actually reassuring people. It's not really fair just to demonize and say, oh, they're against vaccinations. We all want to make the best decisions for our health. So what's most important then is saying, well, what are your concerns and how can we reassure on them? In terms of, you know, are you looking at other studies in terms of around the world? Are, are, are other countries similar to us in terms of the mental health? We have been starting to do some comparisons. We've seen general uh, similar trends. So, for example, this 
pattern that people's mental health tended to get worse in the lead up to first lockdown, but actually seemed to stabilize or improve for many people once lockdowns came in. That's been echoed across a number of countries. Um, we're, we're starting to do more studies now actually trying to see which countries have got the worst levels of mental health compared to others. But they're more complex analyses, so the data from that are, are still under analysis. What, what does seem to be the case um, in general, though, is that countries that have controlled the, the virus better have had better mental health. It's countries where virus levels have stayed higher for longer and there have then been uh, consequential effects on people like socially, for example, in terms of work. That's when the psychological impact has started to build up. Um, do you want to just talk to you about the Kemp household? Because, um, wow, we found it hard. I really have found it hard, this one. I sort of didn't breathe through the last one. I was working, uh, you know, at certain points. But, um, yeah, I, and I'm lucky. You know, I, we've got space in this house, whereas when it gets on top of you, you can go into another room and sit on your own for a bit. But, you know, the pressures of people... I, I used to live in a, in Peckham in a, in a, in a two-bedroom... Sorry, two-rooms two um, flat. Uh I couldn't have done lockdown in that in that room, and people are doing that with like you know single mum with three kids. I mean, how can we quantify what that's like and what harm that's doing to her and to those kids? This is another reason why that phrase "we're all in it together" is just so not fair. Because you're right, it's a totally different experience if you've been locked down in a lovely house with a garden with plenty of space around you, and the ability to distance and get some time on your own. That's totally different if you've been in an overcrowded household where you've had no opportunity to have any space for yourself and you've also had no access to any outside space. And I think that this, this uh, highlights again the kind of inequality that we're seeing here, particularly among in areas of higher and lower deprivation and also amongst individual family circumstances. And this has definitely played a role in how people have responded psychologically. It's, it's made the difference, particularly in that first lockdown last year, between a holiday versus a nightmare. We're all in it together, just some of us are in it a bit more than others. There was a phrase I like, which was same storm, different boats. And I think that's a, quite a good way of thinking about this. We've all been ex going through COVID, but it's been a very, very different experience depending on our socioeconomic position. Is there any advice you can give to people, uh, Daisy, in terms of if they are um, suffering at the moment with mental health issues, what, 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 what can they do? What should they do? I think the first thing is to remember that we can access health services and if people are concerned they should be speaking to their GPs and they should be getting professional support. But also to remember that there are lots of resources out there ranging from things like the Samaritans um, through to other charities that could be able to support if people are facing difficulties like caring responsibilities where they need practical assistance day to day. There are obviously things that people can do on their own kind of self-care activities so making sure they have some time available each day that they could try and spend on a hobby or something that relaxes them, uh, trying to get some physical activity, exercise, trying to make sure they keep eating as healthily as they can. But things like that can sometimes sound a bit flippant if people are facing really difficult circumstances and just don't have the time, space or money to do those things. So I think that's why reaching out to others for support is much better than people feeling they have to suffer in silence and remembering that experiences are incredibly valid at the moment just because someone else seems to be coping really well doesn't mean that you should be coping well yourself yeah we're, we're, we're we are all different aren't we and we we all see things sometimes differently and experience things differently and, and also people that look perfectly fine on the outside may not be absolutely fine on the inside yes that's true and i think there's sometimes a feeling like if we're not managing to cope we're somehow failing 
and that's not fair in the slightest so I think people being kind to themselves as well doing everything they can to support their own mental health but knowing that there is extra supports available to them absolutely and there's no stigma there should be no stigma attached to people saying you know what you know if you break your finger or you break your arm you've broken your arm if, you, if you're feeling depressed there is no you know you shouldn't feel stigmatized going to the doctor and and, and being open about that no I think I think a challenge is that a lot of the studies including ours we, we've reported a lot of the time on average symptoms so you know as a population average things have got better or worse at different times but we've also done analyses where we've shown that not everyone is the average and that there are some people who've been following opposite patterns to the rest of the population and their experiences are just as important they might be a smaller percentage but they're still a mean every individual is meaningful and therefore if they're feeling that they're not getting better when other people around them are that's a particular sign that they might want to try and access more support um is there any advice you can give to, to parents i mean about particularly as we're now coming out of it how, how they cope with their kids and if their kids have mental issues how, how do they go about, about looking after their kids, basically, their, men, their kids' mental health? Well, I think a, a big thing to start with is about parents actually putting their own mental health first, because if parents are struggling themselves, they're going to be in a less good position to be able to support their kids. So I think it's about being kind to ourselves as individuals and thinking that we have to look after ourselves as well as children. I think there are other things as well. I mean, that we obviously hope this will be a passing thing and that kids often are very good at bouncing back after difficulties. So if we project forward a few years, many of the problems people are facing now will naturally have resolved. But that said, I think parents shouldn't be afraid about drawing on the resources that are available, whether that's speaking to schools, speaking to GPs, trying to get professional advice and support. And there are lots of charities out there as well that are offering resources to parents about what kinds of symptoms they should be particularly looking out for in their children, what, how to deal with difficult conversations, and also making sure that parents realize that professional mental health support for their children is available if that's necessary too. Do you think we'll ever, ever go back to the way things work? Someone, someone said to me, it would be like swimming upstream. You're better off to pick a new destination and, and go with the flow. I feel like we will get back to what feels very close to the normality that we had before COVID. Uh, but I think I don't really want us to go back to completely how we were before, because what this pandemic has highlighted is some of the problems we had in our society, issues like inequalities between different groups and some of the struggles that individuals face on a day to day basis. And these have been exacerbated by the pandemic. But I feel that in a way that sort of highlighted how problematic they are and how they really should have been sorted before this to avoid this exacerbation happening. So I'm really hoping that as well as transitioning back to a more normal life, we learn some lessons from this. So do I. Daisy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chance of Collective production. And until the next episode, goodbye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 